turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, and there are Bibles along each side of the pew, along the ends there, it is page 1031 in the pew Bible. And if you're sitting in the back chairs, I believe, there should be a a Bible either under your chair or under one of the chairs in your uh, grouping. Page 1031, and we are going to look primarily at verses 16 and 17 this morning as we think through Paul's letter, Paul's final letter in the New Testament, but Paul's, these words here at the end of chapter 3, as Paul is seeking to ground Timothy in what will make his ministry successful and will what keep him faithful. We have been looking at the five solas, as we said earlier in the service. Sola, gratia, that is by grace alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. Solus Christus, by Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, last week, to the glory of God alone. This is the final sola, sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Now, often this is the first sola. When the five solas are considered, this is the first one of them all because this is kind of the gateway to them all. This is the, the sola. This is the understanding that grounds everything else. This is where we get our understanding of grace alone and faith alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. All of that will be lost and fumbled away as we lose our grip on this singular sola. And Christians all around the world have been increasingly losing their grip on this truth. Keeping scripture around Quoting it, it's familiar. We have numerous translations. We are blessed by that in the English language. But while we keep Scripture on hand, it is not Scripture alone, but Scripture plus something else, which becomes our supreme authority, our, our sufficient authority. And long before the time of the 16th century, The Roman Catholic Church had compromised on this issue. They believed, unlike many Christians today, they believed that the scriptures was the inerrant word of God. That it was God's given word, authoritative for all of us. They believed that. But they elevated the traditions of the church. They elevated the, the, the magisterium, the authority of the pope and councils and church fathers to be equal, even surpassing that of the scriptures. And as a result, the good news of the gospel and the grace of God through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, all of that over time was, was lost, it was fumbled. So it is not surprising that it was this Sola that was first recovered in the Reformation. You go back to the 14th century, to the, to the early and mid-1300s, and you find a man by the name of John Wycliffe in England who began to preach and teach and write that Christ and not the Pope and not the Fathers, but Christ and Christ alone is the head and the supreme authority for the church. This was incredibly subversive. This was rebellious, treasonous in many ways. But Wycliffe believed this and he taught against, he taught this. And in his later years, he made the greatest and most revolutionary argument. He declared that all Christians have the right to have the word of God in their own language. This was heartily and systematically opposed by the Roman Catholic Church. Later in that same century, a man by the name of John Huss, he would be influenced by the writings of Wycliffe. Though Wycliffe was in England, Huss was what we would call today the the Czech Republic. 
Huss, influenced by Wycliffe, began to teach many of these same points. And Huss lived uh, in the latter part of the 14th century, the, the late 1300s, early 1400s. In about 1415, he was killed. And the name Huss is simply translated the, the goose. He came from a town, Husinik, a Czechoslovakian town, Husinik. And so he was called John the Huss. John the Little Goose, and he was often called uh, and referred to sometimes derisively, sometimes as a, a, as a name of derision, but to those who loved him, they, they thought it was a, a, a name that they clung to, but he was called God's Little Goose. And when he was burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church for holding and teaching that the word of God is alone our authority, he declared that there would come a day, a hundred years from that time, where another one would come that the Roman Catholic Church could not burn, could not silence by their flames. He says, today you burn a goose, but in a hundred years a swan will arise which you will prove unable to boil a rose. And a hundred years later, Martin Luther comes on the scene. And he begins to study God's word. And in 1517 is when he, on October 31st of 1517, he nails his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. And why, why October? I'm sorry, I'm supposed to be behind here. I'm, I'm going to forget. I apologize in advance. But why October 31st, right? I mean, why that day? I was asked earlier this month, why October 31st? I didn't know. So the nerd in me began to look and understand why. November 1st in the Roman Catholic Church calendar is All Saints Day. And in Germany, as, as much across Europe, they would bring out all of the relics of the saints and uh, uh, things that, they, that by simply by viewing or, or touching, you could get years off, tens of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of years off of your time in, in purgatory. Things such as the thumb of St. Anne or pieces of straw from Jesus' manger, a twig from the burning bush, crumbs from the bread that Jesus enjoyed during the Last Supper, small bits of the sponge that Christ drank from while on the cross. Speaking of the cross, there were said to be enough splinters of the cross of Christ worshipped as relics across Europe that they could build Noah's Ark from them. And to view these relics, people would pay money. Luther opposed all of this, hated it. And so the day before All Saints Day, he nails his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door, laying down the gauntlet, so to speak. Let's debate these things. And it was Luther's writings in Germany that would later... Influence another man by the, by the name of Tyndale, William Tyndale, back in England, who would become convinced of the truths of the Reformation, particularly Sola Scriptura. And he came out of the Roman Catholic Church, but he, he used his home and hospitality as a means to talk with others and, and spread the gospel, and he would house and feed uh, Roman Catholic priests and clergy. And on one such occasion, one of the church leaders in which he was having in his home declared to him that we had better be without God's laws, that we would be better without God's laws than the Pope's. To this, Tyndale responded, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow that he shall know more of the scriptures than thou dost. Tyndale was disgusted with what he saw as the appalling ignorance by the Roman Catholic clergy of, God, of the scriptures. And this resolve he set in motion and in his later years, he pursued that goal of translating from the Greek and Hebrew, translating the word of God into the common language of English. Often, 
being hunted while he did so. On the run, from one town to the other, had to do this work in, on mainland Europe rather than on England itself because of the threats against his life. This truth of sola scriptura is critical. It has been critical in, in our history, our, our family history. It is critical for us today. And sola scriptura doesn't mean that all you and I need is the Bible alone, that, we, that, that is the only scriptures. That is, you and I don't need to listen to anybody else. We don't need to learn from anyone else. Why go and hear preaching? Why go and study the Bible with other Christians? Just go into your own room privately, read the Bible, and that's sufficient. That's, that's not what the scriptures teach, and that's not what the reformers taught when they were arguing for scripture alone. What they were arguing is that scripture alone is our chief and supreme authority because it is the sufficient word of God for all that we need to know to walk by faith and follow Christ Jesus. We will be helped and well served by studying God's word with other believers in a local church by having creeds and confessions which will state this is what the scriptures teach. But all of our authorities, all human authorities, all human structures, all human speech is to be submitted to, to be governed by the word of God. Not the word of God governed or submitted to the authority of man. And this is what Paul lays out in 1 Timothy chapter 3. You see there in verse 1, Paul, Paul wants to lay this warning for Timothy. This is Paul's last words. He's, he's urgently, he's, he's earnestly aware that after him things are going to, he's seen in his own lifetime how quickly things fall away, how Christians and churches fall away from the faith. And so he wants to warn Timothy to be on his guard. And not just Timothy, but this is a letter to all in Timothy's church. It is a, a public letter to Timothy. And he writes this, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Isn't that funny how disobedient to parents is put in the same category as all of those other sins? Kids, be aware. Unthankful, unholy, unloving unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. Always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. In chapter 4, he'll, he'll write these words, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires because, and he uses this image of itching ears, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Paul is very much aware that this is going to come. Paul saw this happening in his own day. And, and we would be blind if we don't see the same type of thing happening in our day. So what does Paul urge Timothy to do? Well, in verses 10 to 15, he urges him to, first off, to follow in his example and to remain faithful to the word of God. And, and then he gives the reason. Why ought Timothy to be faithful to the word of God? To give attention to the word of God. Why ought any of us to make God's word supreme? And he says in verse 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. As we begin our study on these two verses, would you join with me in a word of prayer this morning, asking for the Lord's blessing as we study his word together. Father in heaven, 
Give us grace this morning. Give me clarity of thought as we unpack this together. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, our God, our Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. What is this scripture that he is referring to? It is this simple word in the Greek. It is graphe. It refers to the written word of God. Primarily here, he is speaking of the Old Testament. He would have also included those, uh, those New Testament writings which had been finished up till this point. We see in various places in the New Testament where Luke and Paul and Peter are recognizing that the other writings that, they have, that are around, that the other apostles have written, are themselves uh, of equal weight and authority as the Old Testament scriptures, that they are themselves scripture. But here he is referring not to merely verbal words, but to the written word of God. And you'll notice that it is a singular, not not scriptures, all scriptures, but scripture. And the idea is that God's word, though it is comprised of many words, in fact, it's comprised of what we call 66 books, though many of them fall far short of anything we tend to think of a book. On Wednesday evenings, we are going through, uh, we've been through 2nd and 3rd John. We are in 3rd John now. 3rd John is the shortest book of the Bible, having only a handful of verses. Jude is similar. 2nd John is not too much longer. These aren't te- technically books, but they are documents, letters. They are 66 written by 40-plus authors over a period of 1,500-plus years, over multiple continents, by people of various backgrounds, some who are wealthy, some who are kings, others who are peasants and shepherds, those who have nothing and those who live in mansions. All of them together writing a unified book, one scripture, one word from God. Because it is behind all of those human authors, there is one divine author guiding, leading every word. This is God's singular, complete, unified word. This is the word of God. And you notice it is all scripture, all scripture. All of the 66 books of the Bible are, are scripture. E- even those books that you may not like so much. I mean, perhaps in your own Bible reading, if you try to read through the Bible in a year, which is an excellent and a, and a praiseworthy goal. But however long it takes you to read through your Bible, you, you, you're reading along and then you get to a book of the Bible and you think, I have no idea what's going on here. All of this is just so strange to me. I can't even begin to comprehend. We tend to think of Old Testament books in that light. Martin Luther, for all of his wonderful, uh, wonderful positives that, that are true about his character, he struggled with a New Testament book, the book of James. He called it a right strawy epistle, an epistle of straw. That is, he thought it was full of stuffing. He didn't like the book of James one bit. On another occasion, he is recorded as saying that he wishes he could tear little Jimmy out of his Bible and throw it in the fire. Not all of us can refer to the book of James as little Jimmy, but uh, Luther could get away with it. In James 3.1, where James writes that not all of us should aspire to become teachers, Luther, in the margin of his Bible, wrote, Oh, James, if you had only taken your own advice. (laughs) He struggled with the book of James. But with all that struggle, for all that struggle, do you understand something? He believed that it was God's word. 
He believed it was God's word. And this isn't just for, for the books of the Bible. This, this, this category of being God's word extends not just from the books of the Bible as a whole, but it extends down to the paragraphs, to the sentences, to the very words of Scripture. If, if you are adept at flipping through your Bible, let me invite you to keep your finger or put that ribbon or mark 2 Timothy 3, 16 in your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. I, I want to just point one thing out to you. I, I want us to see how Jesus viewed the scriptures. It is, it is far different than we might tend to think of it in our day. In Mark 12, Jesus is being systematically challenged. What is God's word? Who are you? Answer this question, and then another question, and then another question. And in Mark 12, Jesus is challenged by the Sadducees about whether uh, the resurrection is genuine. And they, lay, they give him a question that they think will stump him, that will force him to, to say that the resurrection can't be genuine. But listen to Jesus' response in, in Mark 12, verse 24 to 27. Jesus responds to their question saying, is this not the reason you are wrong? I love that. He doesn't beat around the bush, does he? he he's not, you've missed the mark. You're, you're wrong. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you, neither know, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So the reason these individuals are wrong, these religious leaders are wrong, isn't because they have studied God's word too much but because they haven't studied it enough. Christ goes on, verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, you are quite wrong. Now Jesus bases his argument on one word there. And not just one word, but on the tense of one word. Jesus declares that God says, I was, I, I, I am, he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is why Jesus will say elsewhere in Matthew 5.18 that not even the smallest parts of a single letter, the, the, the curve of the letter, the iota, the dot, neither these things, not as small as they are, these things themselves won't pass away. Why is that? All scripture he says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. This phrase, if you're using the New King James, this phrase, given by inspiration of God, it isn't perhaps the best translation. When you and I think of inspiration, of someone being inspired, we think of an artist, right, who is filled with a vision of what they want to create. Of a book or a writer. We think of some act that is inspired, encouraged, feeling uplifted. I, that inspired me. But the word here that is behind this phrase, given by inspiration, is the single Greek word, theopneustos. It, it simply means God-breathed. It comes from two Greek words put together, theos, which is God, and the word neo, which is to breathe, to exhale, to blow. It is the idea of almost what you have is, is someone playing an instrument playing a horn and, and blowing air through that horn or through that flute and thus creating sound. That is the image that we have here of the scriptures, that God is breathing 
into the scriptures. God is breathing out the word of God. That these words are God breathed themselves. It is the same picture we have back in Genesis chapter 2 when God breathes life into Adam. In that same way, God has breathed life into his word. And it is no accident that the same word that is translated spirit and wind in the Old Testament is the same Hebrew word. It is as if God is picking up on, as if Paul is picking up on that image here, that God, by the Spirit, is breathing life into his word so that this word is, is living, it is dynamic. This word is God-breathed. And not just God-breathed, it is God-breathing. Now, many people make the mistake thinking that, yes, okay, this word came about because God breathed it out. That is, he inspired the authors. He he breathed his word through them, and, and they, in turn, wrote it down. And so, yes, it is God breathed, and it's as if God is now, it's God breathed, and God has walked away so that it is Sure, it was God-breathed then, but it's, it's a dead word now. It's an old word now. What we need is a fresh word from God, a personal word from God. This is an old, dusty book. Don't we need something new, something fresh? But the author of Hebrews describes this in chapter 4, verse 12, saying this, that God's word is living and active. Herman Bavinck, one theologian, put it this way. He said, it was not only God-breathed at the time it was written, it is God-breathing. It is alive now. Just as alive now as it was when the ink was yet dry on the page. This is why scripture must be at the center of all that we do. This is why we, we read it privately and publicly. Why we sing its truth and sacrifice our time and our resources to spread its truth. This is why we must use scripture in our evangelism, in our discipleship, in our counseling. In short, every area of our lives. This is why we send missionaries around the world. To declare the life-giving word of God. Because it is God's word that gives life. It is a sort of spiritual CPR for those who need Christ and are dead in their sins. It is the oxygen tank for sick souls. If you've ever gone to the beach and you get out of your car close to the beach and you smell that fresh air for the first time or you go you know, from where you live and perhaps you, you go into the mountains. Those of you who love to go up into the Poconos, you, you go and you get that fresh mountain air. You step out of your car. Everything's so crisp and clean. What do you do? You, you breathe it in, don't you? Now, if you live in the mountains, I'm not sure what you do. Do you go into the city for that fresh air? That doesn't seem quite right. But you breathe that fresh air in. And that's what God's word is meant to do. It is the very breathing out of God, the very breath of God for our souls. This is not merely the word that God once spoke. This is the word that God is now speaking. This is why we let it guide everything. And this is why we must allow Scripture and Scripture alone to be our authority. Because nothing else matches this authority. Nothing else and no one else has this authority. No one else is God-breathed. This is a challenge to, to church leaders and to churches. There is no pope. There is no pastor. There is no church leader. No matter how lofty, how well-dressed, how well-educated. None, no human has the authority that God's word has. And challenges exist, not, not only in the Roman Catholic Church, but in Protestant churches as well. 
where we raise up one leader in particular, give him the voice, and we tell him, him and him alone is the, the, the authority in that church. As if his word then becomes the means by which everyone else and everything else is judged. We do this, perhaps in a church, we do this ourselves privately. A favorite radio preacher, online TV, perhaps a preacher on a podcast. Perhaps it is a writer or someone on YouTube. We can easily raise individuals up to the level that only God, God's word ought to have. It is challenged, as we said earlier, it is challenged by those who would question God's word, whether it is reliable, whether it is truthful, whether it is historical, whether the words that we actually have in our Bibles are the words God intended, whether these are the right books. All of these questions are now levied, once by academics, once by those who did not claim Christ, but by now those who themselves claim to be Christians and yet regularly subvert God's word. It is challenged by those who would claim to receive special revelation themselves. I think this is particularly for our time one of the most dangerous places for us to be in. But this is the danger for us. It is not that we, we in our time will, will hold up an individual or an organization or an institution as being equal authority to God's word. We tend to uphold in some way, ourselves, our experience, our feelings, our impressions of what God wants me to do. God speaking to me audibly, that now becomes the authoritative voice, my own personal gifts. I have seen and heard this kind of thing regularly. I have a gift in this way, therefore the church owes me the opportunity to exercise that gift. Perhaps it is musical. Perhaps you think God has called you to preach and teach. Perhaps you are gifted at teaching. Therefore, I am called by God to preach. This, that, that idea is at the very foundation for, for many to ignore God's word and to allow women to become pastors. Recently, there was, saw a, a video where women were saying, look, ignore Paul, ignore the New Testament. I know God wants me to be a pastor because he called me. Therefore, I should be a pastor. Therefore, the church owes me that. It is my right do you see what we're doing? We are pitting God against God, pitting God's spirit against himself. When we claim to have special revelation, we are raising ourselves up, that experience up over everyone else. We are equating what we have experienced with God's word. And judging God's word by what we have experienced rather than vice versa. I was told when we were moving up here that because I was coming to be a pastor at the church at the time, it was just an assistant pastor. But one of the men in which I worked, he went to a church and he, he informed me, when you get up there and if you become the pastor of that church, you make them do what you think God wants you to do. It's your vision. Make them follow you. And I was just thinking to myself, I'm pretty sure I've not read that anywhere in the Bible. You have the vision. Everyone else must follow you. Brother and sister, we endanger ourselves, we endanger our souls, we endanger others when we use this talk. And this has become so, so common in our day. This is why we have so many authors today who will write books, who will tell you what God has told them. At the danger of stepping on a lot of toes, 
let me just name one author who I know is incredibly popular, okay? You can, you can talk to me at the door if this is your favorite author, we can talk about it, okay? But that book, I'm sure many of you have seen it, that book uh, entitled Jesus Calling Sarah Young, that is, it was more clear in the first edition of that book since, pre, since that, that, these other editions that have come out, the language has been softened. But in that book, she is relaying to you her experience of having gone aside and listened to what, in her mind, Jesus has told her. And she is recording his words on that page, and they have been published. And I would suggest to you, if Jesus has indeed talked to her, then those words logically must be the very words of God. They must be believed and obeyed for all people. And the issue is where those words do contradict God's word, and they do. And if that is newer and fresher revelation, then they ought to correct God's previous word. My point is, it is not to kill your favorite author. My point is, to, is for us to be discerning. To test the spirits. To pay attention. To not ourselves be bound. You know, just this past week, early in the week, I, I came across a, an online political commentator who was interviewing a a, a Christian prophet who was declaring on his video, on his, on his show, that President Trump, by the end of October, was going to be reinstated to office. It, was, it came to her from God himself. It was without a doubt going to come true, unquestionably so. Now I realize there are many who would much rather to have much rather have President Trump than President Biden. But I've heard that prophecy again and again and again over the last nine months. Not for October, it was earlier, it was going to be August. Earlier than that, it was going to be earlier in the summer. And each time it gets moved back. Brother and sister, let us not be fooled by those who claim to have a special word from God. Let us tie ourselves to God's written word and trust in it. You'll never be disappointed. I suppose that prophecy could still come true. They have about 12 hours left in the day. And if I go long, they'll have 11 or 10, right? Just kidding. Trust in God's word. It'll never disappoint you. Trust in it, Paul says in verses 16 to 17, because it is useful. It's useful. It is profitable for doctrine, for teaching. That is, we teach not our own opinions, not our own impulses, not our own politics, but we teach scripture and scripture alone. It is the backbone for everything that we must do and it is the backbone for everything we must believe. It is not only good for doctrine, for teaching, but also for reproof. That is, for correction, for, for confrontation. For confronting us and humbling us. And not just for confronting us, but then also that correction, that is, that, that realignment. It is able also to help us recover, to get back on track. It is good for instructing us in righteousness. That is, it is through the scriptures that we grow and become more like Christ. That we, we become people of character. That we grow in holiness. And it is ultimately able to equip us for every good work. Now here he says for the man of God. Here he is speaking to Timothy as a pastor. This is the thing you need to hang your hat on. What is it that's going to equip the pastor for every good work? It's going to be the scriptures. 
But as I said before, this, this letter is a public letter. It's meant to be read aloud. It's, it's meant to be visible and understood by the entire church. And certainly what Paul is saying here to Timothy would be true from, for any one of us, man or woman. This is what a, this word of God is the thing that will help us endure every trial. It'll help us love others when it is hard to gain wisdom, to handle every crisis, and to fulfill every mission. So what then shall we do? First, we need to elevate the word of God over every other authority to make sure that we are not giving any pastor, any religious leader, any author or speaker the same authority over our lives, over our opinions, as the word of God. Test everything and everyone by God's word. Instead, prioritize your personal time with scripture. Prioritize public reading of scripture. The public teaching and preaching of scripture. Make, make listening to God's word a priority for you. Which means gathering together. Why? Well, first, because God commands it. And God's commands for us are good. And they are good for us. You know, in 2019, just two years ago, a significant study was done. It was conducted by the Harvard School of Public Health and published. It the topic of his study was the religious impact on the mental health of children. And in particular, the study focused in on teenagers. And they, what they found is that regular church attendance makes a significant contribution to, the, to a wide range of health benefits. Here are just a few. That children raised in churches are better protected from depression and drugs and risky behavior. Those who attend church were 12% like, less likely to experience serious depression. 33% less likely to, do, to use drugs. Children raised, children and teenagers raised in churches regularly experienced higher levels of happiness, a sense of purpose, and learned to serve and volunteer more. Along with these benefits for children and teens, there were a host of benefits for adults, men and women as well. One well-respected non-Christian therapist wrote in the Wall Street Journal back around that same time, advising parents saying, advising parents who don't believe in God to simply lie to their children, knowing it would serve their children better. She put it this way, as a therapist, I am often asked to explain why depression and anxiety are so common among children and adolescents. One of the most important explanation and perhaps the most neglected is declining interest in religion. Do you love your children? Make sure they're in church. Let them hear God's word. You know, church isn't something we merely do because we have always done it. We do it because God commands. We do because it is good for our souls. We do it because it is good for us. We, in ways that we can't even imagine, we need it. Lastly, we as a church need to prioritize the work of missions abroad that make it their work to disciple and evangelize people through the preaching and the teaching and the counseling of God's word. You know, there are many missions that make it their aim to, to dig wells and build schools and bless countries in all sorts of ways. And, and we want to say all of those are excellent things and good things that missions can be at work doing. But one of the most important things that is often neglected in light of these humanitarian needs is the simple teaching and the preaching and the planting of churches. Studies have found that 
those countries where missionaries have gone and the focus of those missionaries has been preaching and teaching God's word and planting churches. But the overall health and wealth and, and, and strength of that country has improved far, far greater than those countries where missions has been primarily aimed at humanitarian needs. If we aim merely at digging wells, we will, we will help people take a drink of clean water, and that is wonderful and good. But if we do not give them a, a drink of the water of life, then we have missed the point. This is why we as a church support missionaries with that aim who preach and teach and counsel from the word of God. In 1535 to 36, the governing officials of the city of Geneva wanted to come out of the Roman Catholic Church or rather come out from under the Roman Catholic Church and join the Reformation. This was not because they themselves believed in the Reformation truths of the gospel. Rather, they simply wanted to escape the political oppression of the Roman Catholic Church. Around the same time, John Calvin was in west, southwest Germany in the city of Strasbourg. And a fiery man heard that he was there. He was a, Calvin, a young man, wanted simply nothing more than to study his Bible and to write books. That was Calvin's dream. He never, if Calvin never had to talk to a living soul, he probably would have been happy. This man, Pharrell, heard about Calvin's proximity to Geneva. And so Calvin went banged on his door, forced Calvin, pressured him to come to Geneva and teach and preach the Bible there. Calvin didn't want to go until Pharrell literally threatened him, told him that if he didn't come, God's curse would be upon him. Calvin was terrified of this man, ended up following him, going to Geneva, and for the next two years, he, he taught and then would eventually pastor a church there. But the people in Geneva wanted nothing to do with the word of God. And Calvin, week by week, would, would stand and he would unpack God's word, verse by verse, and he would apply it to their lives, calling everyone to account, rich and poor. And the nobles of that city did not like it. And they and the entire city would riot against him and toss him out. Calvin thought he had his dream, walked away, wiped the dust off his feet, dusted his feet off, and began, went back to Strasbourg, and, and there he, he began to pastor, he, he married, and he experienced some of the happiest years of his life. But not too long later, just a few years later, Geneva would become a cesspool of morality, and they realized how desperate they needed the word of God to be preached and taught. And who else better than, to, than this young, courageous John Calvin? So they called, or sent a letter, asking him to return. Initially, Calvin wanted nothing to do with it. He was content never to go back to Geneva. In fact, he told Pharaoh, when Pharaoh inquired, he told Pharaoh, I would rather die a, a hundred times over than go back to that city ever again. Eventually, he would return, feeling the Lord guiding, directing him to return. And there for many decades, he gave his life. By the 1560s, he had sent out over 1,500 missionaries, many of them who would give, their, give up their lives planting churches in France, from which they had fled from persecution. Many others would spread all across Europe planting churches. Some would even go as far as Brazil. And Geneva itself would be changed. Calvin was, a far, was far from a perfect man. 
flawed in, in, in many ways. And yet, through the simple preaching and teaching of God's word, the city was changed. In fact, I want you to imagine that first Sunday back in the pulpit after he had been kicked out. Imagine you are asked to preach at the place where you had been run out of the city and hated and despised. What would you say? Wouldn't that be just the best time in the world to say, I told you so? I mean, that's, isn't that, you've got three years of proof. I told you so. If you only would have listened. You know what Calvin does? He asks them to open up their Bibles to the very next passage of Matthew that he had been preaching on three years prior. As if nothing had ever happened. Brothers and sisters, the power of God's word to change us over the long haul is beyond anything we could ever imagine. Let us not trust in people. Let us not trust in programs, in technology, in methods. Let us put our trust in God and in his word, for he has spoken. And in it, he still speaks. May we listen. May we listen to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, O oh God, for your word. That you have spoken at all is an act of grace. For we do not deserve even the slightest hint of knowledge of your saving mercy. You would have been just to give us no revelation at all and let us die in our sins as we deserve. But you, O oh God, who loves sinners, who love us sinners, you have spoken. Oh God, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts that receive and submit? And would you give us hands and feet to be about your service? That your word may not only cause us to grow, but that your word, by your word's power, we may go for your namesake. It is in your son's name, our Savior Jesus, we pray. Amen.